Welcome to Rethinking, a podcast about the future of cities and the intersection of the digital and physical worlds. Please visit rethinking.re for fresh analysis and a transcript of all our episodes. Rethinking is written and produced by Jorah Polek. Hi, everyone. This week, we officially kick off a series of interviews about the history and future of cities. My first guest is Greg Lindsay, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of all things urban. Greg is the Director of Applied Research at New Cities and a Director of Strategy at New Cities Mobility Offshoot Co-Motion. He's also a partner at FutureMap, a geostrategic advisory firm based in Singapore. He's a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Foresight, Strategy, and Risks Initiative. Greg writes and speaks regularly about the future of the urban world. And he's also the co-author of a book called Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Troy. Thanks for having me. I've been on the other side of this. It's great to be a guest this time. <laughs> That's right. I was on your podcast, what, like last year or so? It feels like a, a lifetime ago. Actually, not even last year, maybe early this year, perhaps? Yeah, it was last November. It was like, yeah, right when your book came out. All right. Uh, so how are you and where are you, first of all? Uh, I'm good. I'm healthy and well. I'm here in my basement here in Montreal. So I have a bit of a different perspective, I think, for many of your listeners here in the sense of I am uh, not only am I no, no longer in New York, so I no longer feel the New York exceptionalism as keenly, um, but I'm also outside the country, too, where, yeah, I mean, from the perspective of Canada, watching what's currently unfolding in the United States in, in early to mid-July is uh, definitely a foreseeable tragedy, given that, you know, we're not quite Europe, but, I mean, things have a feeling of normalcy here that I don't think they do in the States right now. Mm. Well, you'll be happy to hear that I'm in a basement as well, in the in the suburbs, in an undisclosed location outside of New York City. So we, as you alluded to, we live in very interesting times. Looking around, what are you most excited or intrigued about at the moment? Oh, excited or intrigued about? You know, it's it's interesting. As someone As someone who worked from home for 15 years, but did so as a freelancer, I, it's funny to me how actually apprehensive I am about everyone rushing to embrace our sudden work from home future, if it in fact remains that way. Um, I don't know, I, I guess I'll go off on this tangent real fast because it's something that's very much at my top of mind and you and I have discussed it a lot, which is, yeah, sure. you know, truly is, is have we tipped over from, you know, uh, maximum propinquity and, you know, and simultaneousness of working together to complete work from home everywhere. Um, and we can discuss, I think you and I are both in agreement that there's going to be all sorts of hybrid flows and we'll see like to what level people are empowered. Um, but the thing that I keep thinking about is I feel like most people just haven't thought through the second and third order effects of organizations mm -hmm. exiling their workers, uh, Facebook yeah. being one of them. And the thing I come to is this is, is that if this lasts long enough, I mean, we already saw a trend where organizations were basically emptying out their workforces, right, to more shifts towards independent contingent workers. Um, you know, with platforms like Upwork and Work Market, I, I just, I, to me, the whole notion of is, is this continues on. We're going to see uh, basically uh, knowledge work will become effectively gig work, right? We'll see mm -hmm. corporations and organizations turn to market-driven things versus organizationally driven solutions. And I worry about the sense of agency, like, you know, the sense of people feeling that they get their commute times back or they get their, their work-life balance finally in flux. But what if they find themselves in sort of zero hours knowledge work jobs and all sorts of temporary project-based gig, gig work? Mm -hmm. So that's something I think about. And that's why I'm not as, I, I guess, excited about it, even though I practiced it for 15 years. 
Um, and yeah, and of course, you know, that world, you know, I mean, we could talk about the urban implications, but I, I think first and foremost about how that ties into automation, AI, people being pushed out of sight the same way that a lot of gig workers have been pushed out of sight. Even though so let me, let me right. stop you there then before we yeah. really, before we get to urbanization even. So talking like, if I can summarize your argument, you're basically saying, okay, it sounds like fun. We're all going to work from home, but it also probably means we're all going to just be measured by our output, which means we're just going to be paid based on what we do, which really starts to sound more like an Uber driver or some kind of, you know, junior graphic designer or programmer on Upwork. Uh, which then essentially means you're also not just don't have the same kind of terms that you had before, but also you're competing against any, anyone, you know, whether they're in Croatia or India or, uh, or you know, some other, some other state in the U.S. Um, I, I agree. I think that's where the world is headed. Uh, I, I doubt if geography can, can, can solve that problem. I think like it looks like that's where capitalism uh, is going. Yeah. Uh, but one point of contention, particularly looking at, you know, you're saying that, you know, you've been working like this for 15, 20 years. And same for me, even when I was uh, an employee of a large real estate developer, I was just working from anywhere all the time and kind of being compensated based on, uh, as they say in our industry, you eat what you kill. So, uh, so it was very similar, even more brutal than working on, uh, on Upwork or driving an Uber uh, for different numbers, of course. Uh, but I, you know, I essentially you can say that I too am just a contract worker and it's true. And I just get paid for whatever I can come up with and it's pushing me to be creative. And it does, uh, mean that my whole existence is precarious, but I kind of take it for granted as capitalism. And it means that on the other hand, I have the freedom to, you know, create whatever I want to create and, and yeah, but, and, and always that fear that like, you know, if I miss for two months in a row, then, you know, it can spiral down, which means that I also have to save more and be more responsible and do all sorts of other things that. But, but two, two points to that, and this goes, this will bring us, I think, back to the urbanism discussion. One, of course, we should, mm -hmm. of course, acknowledge our own privilege. You and I are two highly yeah. educated men where, I mean, we're precarious and yet we're highly privileged and, right. and you know, high, earner, high earners. So there's that part. But the second part too is like, so I was an evangelist at this moment we were in, right? Digital workflow tools, this notion that work didn't have to be synchronous in an office. I think, you know, when I thought about it from the perspective of cities, right? Like I thought about it like, yeah, it's crazy that we build these office skyscrapers that are never even half full at any given time and give our prime land to that. So I really, I really agree with the, the people who are out there, you and I thinking about like, you know, new mixed use communities, completely new rethinking uses of that. But I think what that always implied was, is that if we were freed from the chains of having to be in an office all the time and could go anywhere, we would at least be meeting other people, right? We would be decoupling mm -hmm. processes that could be done in the cloud and stay in the cloud and we go out into the world and meet other people. I'm really worried that like, this is not the conventional wisdom that's being promulgated right now. And I hope that that second part goes away. Maybe we'll all shift to Zoom calls and Slack channels for dealing with our coworkers. But I do hope there's a moment where we, we'll be back face to face with people, different mm -hmm. people than our colleagues and doing that again. Because otherwise we're just being shunted out of sight. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, people not going to the office doesn't mean people not wanting to be in a city or not wanting to be near other people. Uh, one concern I have and something I'm kind of keeping an eye on and trying to think a lot about is if we can be wherever we want and if we're less dependent on other people, does it necessarily mean that the people that we will see are only people that we choose and then it means that we don't interact with all sorts of other people, which currently the city is forcing us to interact with but i think it's a positive thing because it first it, it keeps us grounded the second 
it creates opportunities for different people to, you know, first see each other as, as humans and also to access all sorts of opportunities. And particularly for children, I think, you know, to be exposed to all sorts of ways of lives and uh, to be able to move up socially and economically, if not during their lifetimes and at least uh, across generations. And what I'm most worried about is that the physical world is going to become as kind of balkanized as the online world where, you know, every kind of thought leadership organization or every location will retreat into its own bubble uh, with the people that uh, that can afford to participate or that are relevant or, or chosen. And everyone else will just be left in their own bubble, but they might that bubble might fall behind and there'll be kind of complete disconnect. So again, like, like the New York Times and a Reddit uh, subreddit, uh, they will just exist in two completely different realities. And uh, I'm seeing those things coming to the physical world, basically the same distribution of, of people and economic activity. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. I was, I was thinking of two scenarios then. The second one you're, that you're describing is like, yeah, right, gated, gated communities and everything you know, is, is one way of framing that physically. Because it's funny, the, the positive version of that, when this goes back for 10 years worth, like if you asked Americans where they wanted to live, you know, by various Pew surveys and others. I mean, they didn't want to live in New York City and they didn't want to live in the average American suburb. They mostly wanted mm -hmm. to live in college towns, which to me is one of the great yeah. ironies of this, that, you know, and this is a whole separate discussion that, you know, American higher education is about to be annihilated as we know it for all sorts of financial and political reasons. So I worry about those college towns like Ann Arbor and, you know, that's where I think, and, and Santa Fe, you know, in a way, you know, this notion of small but highly proximate kind of thing and yeah it'll be interesting to see how those spaces go there I, this is the part where i plug by the way i have this forthcoming report on uh, on where the millennial generation wants to raise their kids mm -hmm. and yeah i mean my hypothesis even before this was that you know they didn't want to stay in cities forever the housing typologies they would want for families were not there but you know they didn't necessarily want to do single family home cul-de-sacs and they were going to continue this trend of urbanizing the suburbs these sort of walkable you know walk-ups as christopher Leinberger calls them and others and um, I think we're all waiting to see how much that's disrupted that trend. I, I have some faith that they will still come back to that um, because of, you know, wanting to be with other people in physical space in a desirable way. Now, the segregation part of that is a very interesting question about that, about whether this will, yeah, balkanize or segregate even more. So you just mentioned uh, the Millennial Metric Report. I actually, another privilege of mine. I managed to have a look, you know, to, to have a look at the draft report, and I hope it, it goes out soon so everyone can read it. Can you give us a quick overview of, you know, why is this report, why was it written, and uh, what are kind of the main findings? Well, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the top line is like the millennials, of course, are turning 40 next year. Uh, you know, they're entering, you know, 30s and 40s. They're definitely their childbearing years, what was supposed to be their peak earning years, although we'll see if they ever have a peak earning years. And yeah, and of course, you know, various interests are watching to see where they will live. Will they remain, keep their urban preference, which seems to be real based on the review of the literature, um, or will they follow their boomer parents' footsteps and move to the suburbs? And the answer, of course, is like broadly speaking, they were always going to move to the suburbs. It's just that, you know, a few percentage points difference gives you entirely new things. So it's a look at that and sort of the argument there about where they'd go, profile of sort of five different cities, uh, Denver, Nashville, some of the big magnets for that. And then a look at both sort of policy recommendations and also some of the market responses. So I would say, Joy, you're quoted in the section on, you know, the advent of invitation homes and the sort of, you know, liquid asset class of rentable single family homes, which basically was created to cater to them. Mm -hmm. um, and also I didn't even notice that, by the way. I should start searching for myself in every report before I finish. Well, there you go. I mean, Thank millions you. of homes taken off the market that would have been purchased by millennials. So, you know, mm -hmm. so the, the, the main takeaway I have for it is it was a real deep feeling of sympathy for this really maligned generation, you know, the avocado toast generation. Um, because, yeah, even before this crisis, you know, as many thought pieces have pointed out, 
um, their options are really constrained. So, so anyway, so you know, the recommendations are I think are a lot of um, a lot of common ones. I mean, a lot of stuff about you know how to basically reform zoning, how to increase housing supply, um, but a few orthogonal. I think the crisis has proven the utter essentialness of childcare. Um, that we mm -hmm. basically cannot have an econo economy without functioning childcare, and so I right. think just to have that for all are good. And also, I'm one of the people calling for canceling college debt because 90% of it is owned by the government, and even the National Association of Realtors would like you to take that money and buy a house with it. So, mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a few of the provocations. One, one interesting twist. It's always, I mean, every conversation about cities has to mention Richard Florida at some point, I guess. Uh, and and you point out, you know, the the rise of the creative class. Uh, which was written, as I pointed out, like a week or two ago in one of my blog posts, you know, it, it kind of describes the, the knowledge economy in the 21st century. But actually, it's a book that was written 18 years ago when 500 million people only had access to the Internet. There was no barely mobile Internet, no iPhone, no Uber, no Airbnb, no Tinder. Uh, so the world seemed to have been governed by very different forces uh, back then. And I think the gist of that book, and, and again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing it justice, like everyone should read it for sure, but the gist of it is that, uh, you know, millennials or kind of knowledge workers will choose where to live based on the kind of the lifestyle that they see there and not based on their jobs. So the jobs will have to follow them to wherever they want to live and not vice versa. And what you're seeing in the report, uh, I'm not sure if like in a very conclusive manner necessarily is that, you know, people overwhelmingly are interested in employment opportunities and they'll go where those are. Uh, and then everything else is, is kind of secondary and important. Yeah, and this goes back to where work from home scrambles this because yeah, the, you know, the top millennial magnets uh, based on the metric, our partners were uh, even way Cambridge, the you know, big developer here in Montreal. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, they identified Orlando as the top in their metric. And, you know, Orlando, you know, it was like Orlando and Salt Lake and Austin and Nashville and Dallas-Fort Worth. And, you know, it shows the Florida's hypothesis that, you know, it's hard to sort of separate the chicken and the egg there. But, yeah, I mean, Salt Lake is not known as a millennial destination or creative class destination. It's a back office mm -hmm. for financial firms and tech firms. So, yeah, so, you know, we found that, yeah, millennials basically wanted, they wanted affordability and they wanted job growth. They wanted, they wanted guarantees. They're a generation that's been burned and they didn't want to get burned again. Unlike the Xers, you know, who are willing to follow their muse that, you know, in Florida was writing that, um, myself included in that. So, um, so yeah, that gets to the question of, yeah, you know, where, where do they move now to? And this, this, and this could tie into the hypothesis. I don't really believe we're going to see mass flight from the cities at levels beyond, you know, the sort of uh, tidal wave, you know, the tidal drift that we should have expected, right? People were going to leave cities as they reach childbearing age. Mm -hmm. It be 10% more. I don't think so. Maybe it's 2 or 3% more. Um, but yeah, you know, the thing that could scramble it is whether, you know, uh, they see a collapse in wages and they basically have to move to much lower cost living in smaller towns, suburban, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, the early results in this, and this is where we could debate with some data is, you know, I've been seeing, yeah, the New York times piece on basically how, uh, you know, uh, home sale prices in New York fallen by, I think 50%, 40, 54%. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've also seen that rent in, in New York year over year and month over month is only down 2% and San Francisco is yeah. down 10, but Oakland's up five. So I don't know. It's I think I don't know what you see as a as an indicator that you trust absolutely. I see a lot of interesting debate between the Zillows and the Redfins of the world. No, so I mean, I think Zillow and Redfin. Some of the data is relevant because it's it relates to parts of the country that are still functioning. But I think for New York specifically, there's most of the market is frozen. So the transactions that are happening, I don't think tell you too much about what is coming in three months or in six months. Uh, uh, like even looking around me here in the suburbs, you know, any house that comes in, uh, on the market gets sold in like a week and, you know, higher than the, than the asking price and, you know, cash only, et cetera. 
And I don't think that's necessarily because there's suddenly some amazing demand for millions of suburban houses. There's definitely a rise in demand, but I think that mostly people are either like, not all, the, all of the supply is available out there. So the people that really want to buy are just buying immediately. Uh, but I think once the market goes back to kind of uh, functioning at full capacity, then it would be interesting to see what's going on. So I'm not saying that what's happening now is not indicative. I'm just saying that the data doesn't really tell me much. And uh, it might be pointing somewhere that it's correct, but it might also be pointing in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, and likewise for the rental market, you know, like I think evictions are going to be allowed again at the end of this month, I think in Brooklyn at least. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. I think for landlords, in a way, they, even when they suffer, they have to pretend that they, they're not suffering for all sorts of reasons. So, I mean, they're trying to downplay maybe the, the, the pain that they're going through. And, you know, the, the apartments that they go and list on Street Easy, they still put the same price. Like, I, we just left an apartment a few weeks ago and I just saw it listed. And, you know, obviously they're asking the same as we paid. And, you know, I wish them well and I hope that they get it. But, uh, I think the, the adjustments have not been made yet. And, you know, in real estate in particular, the, the the asking price is very, very important because once you lower it, sometimes it triggers all sorts of covenants and you have to go back to your lender and explain yourself. So people prefer to even keep a space empty and pretend that it's worth something rather to actually get money for it and, and learn what is the real market price. Uh, but going back to, so, so you mentioned some of these smaller cities, so Nashville, Austin, uh, Salt Lake City, what happens to a place like New York or a place like San Francisco when even the people who were planning to move out anyway, so let's say like me that, you know, I just said, started a family, have a baby. So, okay, I, I would have left maybe over the next five years, but I'm leaving now. And the four years, all the other people with me are all living together now in the next three months. So you get five years worth of migration out. Uh, what happens to those cities? And does this give them an opportunity to actually reinvent themselves to compete with those smaller college-ish towns? Or does this kind of put them into a down downward spiral that uh, will take them another 30 years to recover from, like we saw in the late 60s and 70s? Well, that, well, I, say, I feel like in the case of New York, there's a, like, a couple of different questions there, right? Like if we're talking like, you know, mass migration all at once, uh, the most indicative answer there in the United States in recent history would be New Orleans after Katrina, right? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so we could we could arguably say I mean they've had permanent population decline and obviously grievous economic wounds, but I don't think any of us would say that New Orleans is over. And I don't know well enough to know their finances to know if they are yeah. stricken. So, um, but yeah, but you know New Orleans continues to exist and function. Um, but yeah, but the larger thing you, you cite there is really I mean it's not about the it's not about COVID. It's about you know the complete failures of of uh, government capacity in New mm -hmm. York and with Blasio and Cuomo and their Punch and Judy show. I mean. What will really, if anything kills New York and leads to the mass exodus you described, it will be the failure to reopen the schools this fall. At that point, if you have, if you have families that have no schools to send their children and they do, and they have you know work from home for the reliable for the foreseeable future, that might be the triggering point where they're like, why are we here? Because until then, you have schools are definitely tethering. I forget, Jorah, if your your child's not school age yet, correct? She's ten months old, so we're we're trying to teach her math and reading, but she's not really responding well to that just yet. No doubt she'll be ahead of the curve, but yeah, I know I've I have two I have a school age child and a daycare child, and like. Yeah, like, you know, the, the amount of tethering that happens when you have children in school, I think will, will sort of, you know, roots that will anchor many of the New York families there. Um, yeah, I mean, it would definitely be a hammer blow if, if that many left at once and perhaps would cause the kind of downward spiral in taxes, et cetera, we would see in that one. Um, then, you know, then you have the whole predictions about whether that would lead to the glorious return of the wild 70s and, you know, young people, Tyler Cowen sort of, you know, speculated, uh, you know, 
uh, out of his butt on that one a bit. But but yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting in terms of what cities will we'll get back to this. I, I had a conversation recently with Aldous Brooks, who was the former city council uh, president in Denver. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, he's actually very bullish on Denver. Denver rents are down 10%, I guess, but he thinks there's going to be a tidal wave. This is where people want to move, is Denver. And yeah. Denver. So, um, so yeah, he's a big believer that they're going to get big coastal outflows into them. And we've seen in the Times data, you know, New York Times calculating New Yorkers. I mean, yeah, there's good outflows to Dallas and Nashville and all in Charlotte and all the Sunbelt ones we talked to. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of those people mail forwarding are holding up in the Hamptons or upstate still. So I'll be curious, right. to, you know, do they, my favorite is the brand of New Yorker who wants to move to Miami, I'm like frying pan to fire or perhaps, you know, COVID to flood I will, or hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see how we're thinking that through. But, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is, comes back to New York exceptionalism. I mean, I think if de Blasio Cuomo had, had responded much sooner, of course, to what other me- global megacities were doing, the outcome would have been very different. And I, I, the only point I'll make there in addition to that is, again, when we talk about like our cities over, I feel like so much of the discussion in the American media has been about New York, for example, when, yeah, you know, Europe definitely. is over. In Canada, in the global media, media, even, by the way, I get phone calls all day from people concerned for my health and safety. And I'm like, it's just, in, <laughs> we see it in the news, just like you, you know, it's like everything here, all the buildings are still in place. There's no bodies on the, you know, on the, on the, on the street, like, it's like it's New York. It's normal. But you said, but go ahead. B- b- before we come back to cities, you actually mentioned something that uh, I didn't plan to discuss, but we can go on a little tangent. So you mentioned that you know having children basically ties you down to a location. What are your thoughts on homeschooling and how that might change people's ability to move around? So both, both like I mean, not just homeschooling in the old sense of like, okay, I'm just gonna keep my kid at home all day and teach them uh, whatever to read the Bible, but in the sense of more local communities most of the content coming out online and then people kind of uh, intentionally commune and, you know, spend time with all sorts of other children and take part in all sorts of activities uh, that again, that they can do in all sorts of places, not necessarily uh, just in New York. I I hope that you never have to homeschool your child in a pandemic and that Mm -hmm. one. I mean, I think, I think the parents who are watching slash listening will not along with me here that, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's beyond difficult. It's uh, I mean, it also depends on the age of the child, right? I mean, you know, 10 month old, my children were 15. I think that would be very different, but um, you know, seven and three are mine. And um, yeah, I mean, being stripped of those support structures of school and daycare and, and, and childcare, it's um, you simply cannot function in a late capitalist knowledge worker society. So we've, you know, we've responded like others are creating pods and we're trying to share those sort of burdens of that one. Um, but I think few people would be, you know, few civilians, you know, would be wanting to, tr- to try that, I think. And um, you know, and I'm not a huge, I'm not a huge believer in MOOCs and in, in online education. I mean, it's interesting watching that second boom come back. Maybe things will be different this time, but a lot of the early experiments didn't pan out. So I don't know. It's like an idea that could always work, but never quite works out. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I saw your recent post where you know you're talking about you know turn of the century families that would you know spend season by season in different locations, like nomadic families. And um, yeah, I just think that the I think it's fascinating. I think you know the global nomads and, and business nomads are very interesting, but. But yeah, I mean, American norms, once you have a family, there is an incredible pressure to stay rooted in place. And obviously, you know, 80% of Americans live within 20 miles of their mothers. So, um, so yeah, there's the, you know, incredible pressure to stay in that, I think. Well, fair enough. Uh, again, it's something I'm keeping an eye on because obviously, like you said, even if you don't have to work at the office, there's other reasons to be around people. So I'm trying to think of how all of these other reasons are being appended by technology, you know, so socializing, dating, even sex, like anything that you can suddenly do remotely or differently uh, is interesting to me, just from academic 
perspective, of course. Uh, so the, the New York Times from this morning uh, has an interesting article by Farhad Manju suggesting a bold plan to make Manhattan car-free. So he mentions that cars currently take an area that is about four times the size of Central Park and that, you know, that if that area could be liberated, the city could be transformed. Uh, how realistic is such a plan? And what do you see as the main barriers to implementing something like this in a place like Manhattan or in any other kind of major dense large city? Well, I mean, again, in New York, it's not realistic because the leadership of New York believes in cars. I mean, you know, again, de Blasio and his famous SUV caravan to go to the gym. Uh, and yeah, Cuomo and his family. So yeah, and the why, yeah. So I mean, so yeah, so in, again, I mean, globally, we've seen a ton of this, Paris, Milan. I mean, you know, the counter to New York in this is, is Paris, you know, where voters have re-elected Anne Hidalgo as mayor with the mandate to implement her 15-minute city to make those kinds of investments. Cities can do it. They have the leadership and the voter support. New York does not, uh, at least the elites don't. So, um, so yeah, I read the, I read the, the Farhead's piece and, and, you know, and I, I agreed with a lot of it in principle. And yeah, you know, I mean, from a real estate perspective alone, you know, seeing the various uh, thought experiments and parklets and things. And so, yeah, I definitely think New York and other cities should think strongly about it. The one thing I want to add to that, and this is I wouldn't have brought up two months ago, but, you know, obviously, um, you know, with Black Lives Matter and post-George Floyd protests, there's been this rising voice of Black planners in this that, yeah, you know, a lot of these open streets are implemented either without their consent or community planning, or they're implemented very poorly. There was a great mm -hmm. uh, thread over the weekend uh, where someone biked to every single open streets in Brooklyn. And, you know, the racialization of them was complete. Ones that were in communities of color were basically abandoned or the NYPD ignored the barriers. And the ones in Williamsburg and other sort of gentrified Brooklyn were, you know, urbanist playgrounds. They were incredible and mm -hmm. spoke exactly to how we imagined it. So, yeah, so I, I think we could see... How could this have been done differently? That, that's actually an interesting... That is an interesting contract. question. Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, first off, you know, actually having enforcement, actually having buy-in from the NYPD or whoever actually enforced those street closures, you know, at least temporarily would be good. Um, having more community input. I mean, I've seen a lot of pushback that, you know, that um, streets and communities of color were closed by you know, people who needed to drive to work because they live in transit mm -hmm. deserts or other areas where they work out in the suburbs and retail and other... Uh, pink collar jobs. So yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more consideration about how you implement those plans. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're long past due a consideration. Parking in particular, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, even as a car owner now, I don't understand why it should be public policy for the city to subsidize my ownership of that car. I and mean, that's a public policy discussion and we can retask it for a lot more people. Yeah. All right. So changing as the, as, as the podcasters say, changing, changing gears or switching gears. Uh, so a decade ago, almost a decade ago, you wrote, you co-authored a book called Aerotropolis. Uh, if I can summarize it, I think the book looked at the role of airports in driving urbanization and economic development uh, compared to the role maybe of trains and, and ports and even highways in earlier centuries, so particularly the 19th and 20th. Uh, so first, is that a fair description or how would you summarize the, the kind of the main thesis? Uh, yeah, that is a fair description of it. And yeah, and, 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 you know, more broadly, it's sort of a look at one piece of how globalization has built massive infrastructures to support it. So, um, yeah, the logic of global capitalism, you know, started producing cities around airports is sort of an inevitable outcome of that. And my argument was, you know, not that this was totally amazing. That was my co-author's mm -hmm. argument. My argument was, if we're going to do this, we should try to at least do it well. And because mm -hmm. in most places, you know, out by the airport is where you put your least desirable land uses. Mm-hmm. So if you, I'm not going to kind of hold you accountable to anything specific from a book from 10 years ago, but I'm actually th going to throw it back to you. If you wrote this book today, 
what would you change or add to it, given what we know now? I was going to say, I literally made the joke this morning on a different uh, interview like this, that, you know, it's a city about globalization, cities and air travel. And I'm currently 0 for 3 on all of them right now. Um, yeah, but it's temporary. I, I mean, more like, you know, when you look 10 years ahead. Well, it's temporary. I mean, I, I mean, I would still argue the core of it, and this gets back to, you know, our discussion here today is, you know, is the part of the core argument of the book when it comes to video conferencing like this is, you know, is that, yeah, you know, as far as we have data collected by Cesar Marchetti, the Italian physicist who came up with Marchetti's constant and others, we know that, yeah, that basically up increases in communication lead to increases in travel, right? You can talk to many, many more people and you'll eventually see some of those people face to face for business or mm -hmm. other reasons. So, you know, you, they, they rise in lockstep. Um, I mean, one question is, is has that law finally been broken? You know, I'm, I'm not sure it has, but that's mm -hmm. a question definitely on the table right now. Um, the second longer term one is, is, yeah, I mean, you know, is, um, yeah, I mean, the climate change obviously has progressed more. That's the chapter uh, that I am not so sanguine about anymore. Um, you know, the, mm -hmm. air, the airlines, uh, yeah, were, you know, greenwashing themselves. They failed to invest in the kind of biofuels I would love to see. I say this as a person who wrote about aviation, binding carbon taxes, binding cap and trade, whatever it takes for policy measures on aviation. I think mm -hmm. we should force them to basically pay that, if only to drive further fuel efficiency and shifts to electrification. So, um, so yeah, the short answer is, is like, I'm still, I'm still bullish on, on air travel. And I still believe in the book because yeah, we still have a global society. I think a global society is good and it will inevitably drive nodes in that global ecosystem that will produce the forms of cities in that regard. And, and, you know, and we can discuss which ones are good or bad from our perspective. I mean, you know, I think Dubai is a fascinating and terrifying place. It's terrifying. Yeah. Obviously, it's a it's an illiberal or liberalish autocracy, but yet it's also the place where the global middle class, frozen out of the U.S. and EU by our visa regimes, blocks to go. It was an oasis for them for the last ten years, which may change now. So, um, so yeah, I, I still think it holds up in in that regard. I still think globalization will continue, um, but I would definitely listen more closely to arguments that you know we should consider about how we provision air travel, how we should, you know, I, I was always in favor of high-speed rail because basically you connect high-speed rail to cities and their air travel goes up because it's like basically building a subway out mm -hmm. of the countryside. Um, so we need to think more carefully about that. But. All right, we're, we're getting towards the end. So, but we're going to have a rapid fire as well later. So, sorry. The questions are only getting tougher. <laughs> so I'm going to go soft again. So in... Let's say in five years, what will be different in our cities? What will be the same? Wow. Um, what will be different in our cities? Um, I do hope that, yeah, we will have this opportunity to rethink exactly how much street space we allocate to cars. I think that's a given. I think we're going to see the advent, I hope, of your neighborhood community workspace, third place. Um, and that's, you know, that, yeah, we should uh, de emphasize the centrality of the office and the CBD. I would like mm -hmm. to see central decentralization into denser suburbs, uh, you know, former streetcar suburbs, et cetera, that's your job. And therefore you can bike or walk to work that way. I think we'll see more cloud commuting where, you know, I might sit next to someone who I never speak to, but we both cloud commute together. And, you know, therefore I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, we work is dead, long live we work camp on that one that, you know, perhaps, you know, flowers will sprout from its corpse or it's not mm -hmm. dead yet, I suppose. Um, other things we'll see, um, you know, I am curious about what housing typologies will change. Um, I don't know, housing takes a long time to change that way. And I've seen various plans by others of like having mud rooms and decontamination chambers. Uh, I don't know if that'll, if that'll stick, um, I'm not so sure. But I do think we've seen the need, by the way, for 
yeah, that you know, we need to rethink how we provision social housing here in Montreal. That's been a, a major push of the government. And we know mm -hmm. that now, for example, that the overcrowded illegal immigrant and refugee housing was a major uh, factor in the infection here. I think senior housing is something that we need to have a major conversation about in the United States and Canada. We fail them at every level. That entire system needs to perhaps be overhauled and, and multi-generational living needs to come into effect. I would say the most provocative thesis I've seen, uh, Venkatesh Rao, you know, uh, Ribbon Farm and his whole crew, he's got a consulting shop now or they're a sort of confederation and, and they imagine, you know, these almost like multi-story intergenerational family mansions and multi-family mansions where you're living and working together and everyone else. Mm -hmm. and, it was a beautiful provocation. I actually kind of like liked that idea a lot. So perhaps we'll start to see the the more acceptance of that of that fluid divide there. But but I, you know I guess I'm still in, if we have to do density versus dispersal, centripetal versus centrifugal, I'm still on the side of centripetal because even if we see this uptick in delivery and other sort of automated services, it's more efficient for them to operate in in denser physical areas, etc. So, and I should say this is all prefaced on the fact that this will be a pandemic and there will be a vaccine to it and we will have. Mm -hmm more pandemics in the immediate future. All bets are off the table if the bubonic plague in Mongolia now starts to spread. Yeah. You, one, one point that came up in your comments now, which is interesting because I've heard it from a few different directions that it's also something that I've been feeling in my personal life, is that suddenly, you know, multi-generational households are becoming interesting and relevant again. And so I spent the last three and a half months with my mother-in-law and my wife and my daughter and my female cat. Uh, so... And I have to say, it, it was very pleasant and enjoyable, I think, for all of us for, for different reasons. And it made us start to reconsider things that we didn't even think about, not things that we even dismissed, but stuff that we never thought we should even consider. Uh, and, and I'm hearing this from other people, and I think that more and more people are kind of thinking, okay, even if I move out of the city or whether I stay in the city, I maybe need a different kind of housing product. And on the one hand, you have these boomers who even though we talk about millennials being like in debt, et cetera, the boomers also experienced 2008 and they also experienced uh, March, 2020. And actually most of them are not on Robin Hood. So most of them actually sold <laughs> everything they had at, at the end of March and ran yeah. away for their lives. So they didn't even enjoy the, the kind of wave of the last two months. And uh, if I was about to retire now, obviously I wouldn't like, I would take all of my money out of the stock market. Uh, and then you have the millennials who want to live somewhere. And as you said, maybe they need more childcare and need more help. And clearly the government is not going to step in and, and do anything meaningful there anytime soon, at least not in the U.S. Uh, so it looks like there's an alignment of, of interests uh, that also I think we, we should keep an eye on in the coming years. So before we finish, let's do a rapid fire. So I'm going to give you five terms one by one and just give me a quick thought, a word, a sentence, etc. American suburbs are going to look more and more like cities. Canada. Canada is going to be the superpower of the 21st century. <laughs> wow. WeWork. WeWork, uh, a noble experiment who we will look back fondly as a progenitor of a whole new generation of followers. Boomers. Okay, boomers. And one last thing we actually didn't mention today, so drones. Drones will be nimbied out of existence by Americans who will not be able to stand that high-pitched noise. Wow. All right. So we have a lot to, uh, to come back to in a few years and see uh, whether we were right or wrong. Thank you so much for this, Greg. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you've been the first guest of the rejuvenated and rechristened uh, Rethinking podcast. 
I hope it was enjoyable for you as well and for our listeners. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Troy. Thank you and see you soon. Please visit rethinking.re for a transcript of this episode and fresh analysis on the intersection of the digital and physical worlds.